Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be back with you after an extended break. I do hope to be podcasting more regularly these days, but I have said that before. Uh, but there is this new multi-host podcast that I'm going to be a part of, along with 11 other hosts uh, put together by Alan Kirshner called Bible Prophecy Daily, which is going to launch in February, I'm told. So I'm excited about that. I'm going to put together some original content for that. I haven't quite decided if it'll be sort of Bible studies or something else but uh, or topical things. But right now I've got a couple clip shows in the can for my first two episodes there. But in any case, uh, it will be called Bible Prophecy Daily. It's an ambitious and I think hopefully extremely impactful uh, project. But in this podcast, I wanted to talk about something that I've been thinking about pretty regularly since the Christmas break after watching It's a Wonderful Life for the first time. I'd seen little clips of it, and I basically knew the premise before, but I'd never just sat down and watched the whole thing from start to finish, and uh, it got me thinking about uh, a lot of things that we're going to talk about today. But basically, it's going to get really philosophical in here. We're going to talk about Nietzsche and Viktor Frankl and C.S. Lewis and great philosophers. Uh, even I think really every philosopher, starting with Socrates to present day, I mean, I don't know, maybe Jordan Peterson or something, they're all talking about the exact same thing. They ha they're trying to move around the same chess pieces on a board, which I'll talk about in a minute. But, you know, I think I think what we're going to talk about is very practical. It's not just philosophy for this for the sake of philosophizing. I think that th if you understand this, which is essentially the meaning of life, then it not only empowers you for uh, this world, but it, it it also helps you to endure great suffering, even the greatest suffering known to man. And, and in, in a sense, I think this is something that Westerners are uniquely blind to unless they have had a life of suffering. Um, then, then they're sort of missing out on the great questions of humanity uh, before we've had everything all the time. So um, I guess I could start out by giving you the answer in a sense, um, and then we'll go through the details of, of how we got there. So the premise is that true meaning, the meaning of life, if you will, is derived from the hope in eternal life in the kingdom of God. And to the extent that we understand that, the gravity and reality and the details to of which we have been given about the eternal state, the more that we understand that as a true reality, the greater humans we will be in this world, the more we will do for other people, and the more we will be able to endure great suffering. I also think it gives you the satisfaction that people are seeking, the, the meaning that keeps them going. It's, uh, if you've ever seen Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, it's this pyramid that at the bottom is is basic stuff like food and shelter. Like, if you don't have that, that's all your meaning is. There's this interesting thing I think I've talked about on the podcast before where he's talking to this tribal people who, like, you know, daily are looking for meat. And they were trying to ask him these deep questions about, you know, life and what's it all about. And, and they just kept bringing it up. It's like, are you talking about meat? I think that what you mean is meat. Like, they couldn't get past the that was just the highest ideal that there was. But if you have that, then you've got, you know, it keeps going up. And I think love is one of the, like the third one up the tier, like you want to, to be loved and stuff like that. And then at the very top is what they call self-actualization. This is the feeling that you're doing what you were made to do in a sense, you know, like you're, you're, you're achieving these great goals that, uh, you know, you're best suited to do and this sort of thing. And it's really about sort of your feeling of completion in life. And I think that this also, if you have the right understanding of 
the nature of reality, it also is a shortcut to the top of Maslow's pyramid. What I want to argue is that biblically and in our lived experience as humans, we find that it is those that really understand heaven that have the power to endure and the power to become who they are meant to be and to feel like that they have actualized that. Um, there's, of course, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, which which says, for the light, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And many of you will know that that's not the only place by any means that the Bible talks about our hope in eternity being not just what uh, gives us uh, strength through sufferings, but it gives us the motivation to live for Christ. It gives us uh, our, as our completeness and, and, uh, and thankfulness. And it's out of the abundance of that thankfulness that we do things. So it's like this multifaceted tool that we can use, this hope in eternity. C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book called The Weight of Glory, in part about this very subject, he was imploring people to, to not have deficient views of heaven. And he said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It, it, it Since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that they have become so ineffective in this. And this is really a repudiation in, in some sense of Nietzsche, as we'll see, and it's a wonderful life, really. But um, And the Fight Club, too, which is also about Nietzsche, but it's a repudiation of, of the idea that, you know, you're so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. And in fact, it's the opposite. And it seems like it's provably the opposite, you know, that Christians who do the most for this world are the ones who, th but here's the key part, that thought the most of the next. And C.S. Lewis really means that. It's the most, the more that you dwell on it. He goes into that in other places. But my point is, what I want to do is I want to also convince you that we may have a deficient view of heaven. Even if you, I mean, some people just view it as like the absence of hell, like, oh, I, I got out of hell, hell, here I am at in heaven, or it's just a place that you get things or on a cloud with a harp or something like that. But even if you have a fairly biblical view of heaven, it's probably also deficient. So let's start off by talking about It's a Wonderful Life, the famous Christmas movie. It's the story of a man who, you know, we see his life in the first half of the movie, his interactions with business and his interactions with his family, and he has a good life. Uh, but that life, and he lives a moral life, more or less, and that life um, starts to deteriorate at some point, and everything starts to really go wrong, to the point that he now wants to commit suicide. But he is stopped from committing suicide by an angel, who shows him, and miraculously, what life in his town would have been like if, if he had never existed. And he walks them through this town, and the town is just, nobody knows who he is because he'd never existed in this timeline, right? And so, but the, but the town is just in complete shambles. It's, a, it's all gone to pot. You know, the, the, the whole town and everything is just way worse. Uh, and the moral of the story is that when he comes back, and he, now he knows that he has done great works, that he never really even knew that, that what he was doing was having such a major impact on society. But now he does know that his... Uh, works were impacting humanity in such a great way. So therefore, it is a wonderful life. And while on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that, and I, I don't really have any um, you know, major problems with it, um, I just had a sense that that's not enough. You know, that that's not enough of a reason to have a wonderful life. That's not what life is about. That's a very worldly thing. I didn't really understand at the time that it was 
really Nietzsche's philosophy. I think it's the same thing as I mentioned with Fight Club. With Fight Club is an actual uh, uh, um, movie that's based on Nietzsche, but it, it comes to the same conclusion, as we'll see. But we need to get into the philosophy before we can understand what I'm talking about here. I like to think of this problem like a big game board with about five different pieces that might be labeled meaning, suffering, hope, eternity, sin, to a certain extent, although we won't talk much about that today. But they're just moving these chess pieces around to find out a system of worldview. And it's interesting, we're going to start off with the, the meaning chess piece. And the interesting thing about the meaning piece is that most philosophers put it in the same place, whether they're secular or religious, they put it in the same place on the board, which is to say they understand that man needs meaning in his life. And then without it, uh, it kind of all falls apart. So to start off with meaning, we need to first talk about Friedrich Nietzsche. At least he's a good place to describe the problem as he saw it, which is that he believed that the world up until his time, which was sort of, uh, you know, early 1900s kind of thing, um, believed that meaning, the needed meaning that they had, remember he puts it in the same place that man needs meaning, and he says that up until then, man had derived his meaning from what he called true world theories, which is an idea that I think is more or less uh, true and insightful. Um, so for example, the Christian view obviously is that we see the true world, if you will, as the next world, uh, like C.S. Lewis said earlier, that, that we really, that in, it's in viewing that world that we derive our meaning. And I would argue that is true. And he would take it further and say that this is also true for uh, other religions, he goes through the different religions and how like the Eastern religions are essentially doing the same thing, even though they don't have like a view of heaven kind of thing. He even says that most atheists have a version of this. He, he was uh, talking about communism and he said, communism sort of promises this one day utopia. You know, if we can all do the communist thing really good and, and work really hard, then one day we'll just have this perfect society, this communist utopia, a true world, if you will. So the communist is deriving even his meaning from a true world. So that's Nietzsche's um, understanding of a, a true world. The big problem, as Nietzsche saw it, was... Well, he was living right around the time, a little bit later than Charles Darwin, really after Darwin's, uh, you know, theories about evolution had started to permeate society and become really in vogue. So there was this sense during Nietzsche's life that, you know, it was really done. Christianity had been fully debunked, you know, all we got to do is find these uh, transitionary fossils and that's it, uh, you know, case closed. And so there, I think that Nietzsche really believed that, you know, Christianity would be extinct in the next you know, generation or two, if even that long. So that's where he, you know, the famous line of God is dead. But of course, this creates a problem for meaning. If man, which needs meaning, derives his meaning chiefly before that from a true world, by which he mostly means religions, and he's chiefly talking about Christianity here, because that's his the focus of most of his ire. Um, if so now that God is dead, where is man going to get his meaning from in, in absence of a true world to believe in, since it's intellectually dishonest to do so? The great fear is that not having a true world and thus not having meaning would inevitably lead to nihilism, which is the belief that existence is meaningless. And thus, you know, what is the need for any kind of 
morals? Why not just live for yourself and survival of the fittest and live for pleasure? And in one sense, uh, that idea of nihilism is Nietzsche's chief adversary. It's the thing that he devotes a lot of attention to. What do we do now to guard against nihilism? So Nietzsche's solution was that man can derive his needed meaning instead of from a different world, from this world, and that it would be accomplished uh, by setting lofty goals that would benefit the human race. Uh, this is where his concept of the Ubermensch or Superman or Oversoul comes from. The idea of the Ubermensch is that now that we know that religion is all superstition in his view, uh, this new man must derive his meaning from this life alone. And the best ideal, the best you can shoot for as a person is this Ubermensch, which would be someone who, who creates and follows these lofty goals to achieve great works for the benefit of the whole human race. He talks about it a little bit like it's a different evolution, you know, like a man before, you know, from monkey to modern man is as different from modern man to the Ubermensch. Like we're going, to, we're going to need to not just evolve intellectually, but we'll evolve physically into this, uh, this person whose goal is, you know, um, um, doing great works for this world. And he really does mean that, you know, setting these huge goals and making a true impact on the world, you know, much like you know, it's a wonderful life and fight club and the World Economic Forum, all of which is that we defeat nihilism through doing our great works for society. But we now come to a crossroads with Nietzsche because there is a problem that needs to be dealt with before he can continue. And it is the problem of suffering. Suffering is another one of these game pieces that a philosopher must find a place for. And the reason why you have to find a place for suffering if you're a philosopher is because suffering is like the auditor of your meaning system. Whatever you think the meaning of life is, that meaning of life has to work for everyone or at least most people. But the life that we see around us on this world and throughout history is pretty much characterized by suffering. Entire religions just see the wheel of life as the wheel of suffering that we're trying to get off. I mean, it's just a terrible existence for most of people for most of the time. Meaningless suffering. What do we do with that? Um, we're going to look at a guy named Viktor Frankl, who was a devotee of Nietzsche. He was a also a psychologist, lived after Nietzsche had uh, you know, uh, gone mad and, and died. Uh, but he was a Jewish man that was put into the concentration camps and, and, and wrote about the psychology of the people in, in concentration camps. And as a Nietzsche devotee, it's a really interesting study because he wants to, to, to prove Nietzsche. He wants to prove that meaning is derived from this life and how does Nietzsche work in a concentration camps. And his discoveries, although not Christian, uh, he sort of sees through a glass darkly the truth of the matter. One thing he says, a quote from Frankel is, if there is meaning in life at all, then there must be meaning in suffering. And so Nietzsche knows this. He knows that, for example, you know, some, some poor person in India uh, will live his whole life in, in, in squalor and live and die without any kind of it, it just abject suffering. So how he's not going to do a great work to impact society. So what do we do with that guy? How does he, that, that guy's suffering audit, you know, how does that work with Nietzsche's view? So Nietzsche put 
a lot of effort and spilled a lot of ink on the subject of suffering because he knows that it is sort of looming in the distance as a critique of his meaning system. What he concluded about this was that enduring suffering and hardships make men stronger, which is something I would agree with. But he says that that suffering should be looked at as a great thing since it will ultimately get you closer to achieving your goals for the great works of society. So he's bringing it back to his meaning thing that we need to be the ubermensch and, and, and help society. And so suffering should be integrated into that goal because suffering can help you get there. Some quotes from him on this. Examine the lives of the best and most fruitful people and peoples and ask yourself whether a tree that is supposed to grow to a profound height can dispense with bad weather and storms, whether misfortune and external resistance, some kind of hatred, jealousy, stubbornness, mistrust, hardness, avarice, and violence do not belong among the favorable conditions without which any great growth even a virtue is scarcely possible. Another quote, I do not point to the evil and pain of existence with the finger of reproach, but rather entertain the hope that life may one day become more evil and more full of suffering than it has ever been. Another quote, to those human beings who are of any concern to me, I wish suffering, desolation, sickness, ill-treatment, indignities. I wish that they should not remain unfamiliar with profound self-contempt or torture of self-mistrust, the wretchedness of the vanquished. I have no pity for them because I wish the only thing that can prove today whether one is worthy of anything or not that one endures. So in my view, Nietzsche deals with suffering in his writings, but he doesn't really deal with the problem of suffering's critique on his theory. He says that you know suffering should be used to uh, further your goals to better society, to find meaning and avoid nihilism. But the problem is that you know, suffering, meaningless suffering exists for most people most of the time in history. So it just, as Viktor Frankl says, if there's meaning in life at all, there has to be meaning in suffering. And Nietzsche said, yeah, there is meaning in suffering. It's going to help you be the Ubermensch. But what if you can't be the Ubermensch because you're about to be shot in a firing squad or any number of situations of people in the world as they're being taken in slavery to some place, you know, what, what then? You know, that they're not going to write a great work. They're just going to die. Is there meaning for them or not? If not, then, then we're back to the same place of nihilism. So this is where we come to Viktor Frankl to really figure out what's going on here. Viktor Frankl, as I mentioned, was a Jewish psychologist, devotee of Nietzsche, wrote about his experience in the concentration camps. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, which I highly recommend. The audiobook is uh, really good. So he describes his experience with these people who had no meaning, only suffering, and the sure expectation of death. Most of the people that he encountered would die. He was one of the very few lucky ones who made it to the end. So you can tell by his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that he also agrees that man needs meaning in his life. And Frankl often conflates meaning with hope, and I think that's a really profound insight that I also do. I mean, in some sense, meaning, and I'll argue, kind of is hope. You get your hope from meaning and vice versa. And he, and I think to a certain extent, Nietzsche understood this too, because Nietzsche talks about man needing meaning, and he derives his meaning from true world theories, which is ultimately a hope in a different world. So Nietzsche also understands that. Frankel would relate stories like a man who had a dream in the concentration camp that the camp would be liberated on such and such a day. You know, he had a prophecy in his dream. It's going to be March 5th or something like that. 
And so he was in good spirits, you know, until that day came and went and they weren't liberated. And uh, Frankel says he fall, falls into despair and, and dies like soon after. Um, Frankel relates stories about the worst days in the camps and how he would talk to his wife in his head um, and he derives some sort of meaning through that. He, Frankel, in a sense, is kind of all over the board in terms of what he means by meaning. The first example is kind of hope. The second example of him talking about, you know, talking to his wife as if she was there was some sort of kind of meaning that he said really helped him get through some of the work stuff. Um, you know, the hope that he, he talks about things like man will do, he quotes Nietzsche and says, a man who has a why can endure most any what, meaning that if you, you would walk over glass or hot coals if you thought that by doing so you would save your family's life or something like that. A man could endure the concentration camps easily if he thought that it was his life for, you know, his, his family or his children or something like that. If he had meaning to the suffering, he could do it. But what about when there is no meaning? That's really where the question keeps coming down to. What if you don't have any of that? Can you just make it up? So to a certain extent, I think Frankel was throwing a lot of different meaning propositions at the problem to see if they would work. And he, you know, some people say, if you read like, a, what did Viktor Frankl find meaning in, you know, a secular version, it'll say like, he derived his meaning from helping people in the camps and psychologically analyzing them or something like that, doing a great work, if you will, because that's what, I mean, as a Nietzsche devotee, he's, he's doing his great work, he's writing this book, and, you know, to a certain extent, he is the Ubermensch uh, uh, in that sense, uh, as far as Nietzsche would be concerned. But that's not what Frankl came up with. And that's what's interesting about him. I'm going to read some quotes that I think, well, speak for themselves. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart, that salvation of man is through love and in love. Another quote, it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life daily and hourly. Our answer must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. And I like this one. It says, we who lived in the concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Frankel uses a term sometimes called absurd nakedness. They would be all, all naked in various circumstances. And he would say it's absurd nakedness. And, and there's this sort of feeling of nakedness that he's talking about there, which is that when you've got nothing and you've got no hope, when they've taken literally everything from you, your dignity, everything, what do you have left that has anything to do with meaning? And he sees it in these other people in the camps. He, he he describes it here, uh, you know, after he's kind of come to the end of all these attempts at meaning and things like that. Um, he sees it in other people. He says, you know, giving the, the bread. He says at one point, um, you know, 
the, we all know the best people in the camps, they didn't make it out. You know, they were, they were being self-sacrificial to people and stuff like that. And Franklin himself says uh, later that he's like, he finds that it's in being sort of loving and self-sacrificial to do the right thing just because it's right, that there's something powerful in that. There's some, that's the answer. Now, Victor Frankl never became a Christian as far as I know. He didn't marry a Christian woman. I don't know. I don't really know where he was at. But at this point when he's writing this, he, 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 he sees it. That's why I say he sees it through a glass darkly. But he doesn't understand where that person's hope came from. He, he sees the reflection of the hope that those good people had, in my opinion. But uh, those people would be, I think, the, I think a great study could be, you know, Victor Frankl and Betsy Ten Boom. If you've never read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, her sister Betsy, also in the concentration camps, this bright light who totally thought nothing of this world, but only of the next world, and just shone love towards everybody, just was this beacon of light. And I believe she's the kind of person that he's talking about when he sees this and it inspires him to know this. Now, Frankel later on will go on to teach uh, his sort of version, as sort of a... a, a take on Nietzsche's philosophy. And really, he would do this psychology where people would come into his office and be like, hey, you know, I'm really depressed. And, and he would talk through their life and try to find out uh, where they could have meanings. Like, well, your cousin, you know, you could mentor your cousin. There's some meaning for you. And that was how he would deal with it in a secular way. How he, in other words, he sort of backtracked quite a bit in his in his actual practice when he was out and became famous in, in the world. He kind of reverted back to Nietzsche and sort of just find something meaningful in your life, you know? He called it uh, logotherapy. Um, so anyway, I guess my point is that just the fact that he was so profoundly trying to find meaning in this meaningless situation and ends up finding it in the people who were self-sacrificially loving to people for no reason, he never really defines it. The book leaves you like guessing, like, well, what do we, what, what does that even have to do anything? It doesn't have an answer in his book, but he, he sees it. Now I want to transition to another couple pieces on the chessboard, which is eternity and hope. And it's interesting. You would think, well, eternity surely isn't a part of most philosophers, but yet, I mean, look at Plato. I mean, Plato, believed that there must be an eternity. He definitely put it on a chessboard, uh, and I think a lot of these people did. Now, Frankel, as far as I know, he didn't even have a place for eternity. He was a Nietzsche guy, right? So he puts, he just throws away that chess piece. And uh, we need to go back to Nietzsche for a second to understand that his premises are wrong. So if you read Nietzsche, he, he believes that, especially with regard to Christianity, who I said he has most of his attention, and maybe it's because of its culture or whatever, but he, he says that one of the biggest problems with Christianity is that, you know, because they're so focused on the next world that they're no good for this world, that they're, they're doing society a great disservice because they're too focused on heaven. And so they'll, they'll never do any great works for humanity. But it, it seems like that's just an obviously easily debunkable situation. Well, let me read a quote from uh, Echo Homo from Nietzsche. He says, the concept beyond true world invented in order to devalue the only world there is, in order to retain no goal, no reason, no task for our earthly reality. And I think that's where, you know, C.S. Lewis, who I don't think was specifically, maybe he was, because C.S. Lewis was a philosopher. He was a don of philosophy at Oxford, so he certainly knew about Nietzsche. And so when he says things like, if you read history, you're, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. So, 
it is the, and I, I suppose you could go scientifically prove this, you know, in terms of who's giving the most to charity. I mean, it's certainly at that time, the only people that were doing anything for the orphans or the, 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 the society at all were these Christians. I mean, you could go on and on and on and, and show that Nietzsche was just biased. He did, he intentionally didn't, didn't understand, at least in the case of Christianity, that it was doing, that yes, the people that they believe in a true world, but they are certainly not idle here in helping this world. So there's one of uh, a fundamentally wrong premise of Nietzsche, and of course the first one is is definitely wrong, which is that God is dead, that, that, that there would be no Christianity in the future because everybody had scientifically disproven it. And while, you know, a lot of the world does believe that, um, you can see these debates with, uh, you know, like William Lane Craig and these famous atheists, atheists to know that their arguments aren't exactly a, a, a Socratic method kind of things. They're just like, you know, pot shots and stuff. They don't have a, a robust argumentation to prove their atheism, especially in light of what I think is the much superior arguments of Christianity. Um, but anyway, so the reason I think that the hope chess piece and the eternity chess piece go together is because you hope in eternity. That's what you're hoping for. That's what you're looking for. Where And if you throw away eternity because you believe God is dead, then hope really doesn't have much meaning for you. You can use it occasionally, like Viktor Frankl brought it into his philosophy when talking about that prisoner who had a false prophecy dream that the camp would be liberated on such and such a day. He had hope in something uh, that uh, wasn't true. And so that hope, as Viktor Frankl points out, it was very powerful to him at that point. So hope is is really an important part of man's search for meaning, but hope in what? And that's where the eternity piece must be put into play. I want to read some Bible passages, and I want you to listen for these chess pieces, like hope in eternity and meaning and good works in this world and suffering and all these different things that the philosophers have been wrestling with. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Skipping a little bit ahead here in Romans 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies, i.e. the resurrection to eternal life. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we await it with patience. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal." Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, the, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why, you know, you can see here that the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is the perusia, the appearing, is called the blessed hope in Titus, 
but that blessed hope is in our inheritance to a kingdom. We have been chosen for a kingdom. I'll read uh, this verse. Giving thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1 Corinthians 15 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. I like this next one because it shows one of the facets of this hope that we have in eternity spurs us to uh, better living, to resisting temptations, etc. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, i.e. hope in eternity. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It goes on. And I could go on reading passage after passage about how our hope in eternal life is useful for enduring sufferings, for spurring us to good works, for thankfulness to the God of heaven, for choosing us for this kingdom, for an inheritance to be adopted as sons, to, to be given eternal life. And this is where I really, this is what the point of this whole podcast is. I want to now try to impress on you this weight of glory, to give you some idea about what heaven is really like so that you can truly appreciate not just that we've been saved, obviously, from our uh, uh, eternal damnation, but what it means, what the seriousness of this whole thing is. One of the things I think helps us understand more about the kind of eternal life the Bible is offering is to understand that it's a real body. In the same way you look down at your hands and they, you know, you, you're real, you're here. Your resurrection to eternal life is a real resurrection to an eternal life with a body. The bodies are described um, in several instances. I think that you can make, I mean, well, it makes explicitly the case that uh, the kind of body that we will have is the kind of body that Christ had upon his resurrection. That's why he was the first fruits. Um, but uh, John makes the case, beloved, now, uh, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Other places describe his body as being real. You know, he eats with people, actually eats food, uh, like the angels were also able to eat, uh, you know, food and different things like that. So it's a real body, but uh, without the sin nature that it had before. Um, so that's important to realize that we're actually resurrected from the dead. You know, I like to think about it, you know, these new world order types are given this false hope. Um, and actually C.S. Lewis talked about that in his Hideous Strength book, that that's false hope, that they were given this uh, carrot on the string as if they could one day get eternal life like that. That's what they're trying to do with their technocracy and stuff is to download the human whatever. But we really are being given that. We're being given eternal life. Say what you want about C.S. Lewis, but he definitely thought about this deeply. In his book, The Weight of Glory, there's an interesting uh, quote where he says, um, it's important to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the 
circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours that of a great gnat, but it is, a, but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Even that quote, you wouldn't really understand if you had a deficient view of, of eternity in heaven. For example, he talks there about how even the, the negative outcome is still eternal life, which is, of course, the resurrection of the unjust, the great white throne judgment. doesn't blink them out of existence. They're also eternal. We're all eternal beings, really for real, eternal. Um, you know, I like to think of this sometimes that helps me really get the gravity of, of what eternity is, is that, you know, really... 500,000 years from now, I don't know what I'll be doing, but I suspect that I will have something going on, some work that probably my personality now is more geared toward. In other words, my real ministry starts in eternity. I, I don't know what it would be. I don't know what, you know, it says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended what God has in store for those that love him. I think that there are mysteries that we can't even understand, can't quite comprehend, can't understand the true gravity of what is next. And I think of it like the angels now. It's interesting to me that we don't know much about the prehistory of angels. There's a little bit that you can glean from the Bible. Well, we don't know, you know, but it does appear that they, they have some special uh, pre-existing role. They were doing something with God. There was a world with angels. And I think and now those angels play a role in our world. They're, they're watchers and these different things. They're, they're playing a role. But they had their own sort of thing before this. And I am quite certain that we, you know, 500,000, a million years from now, whatever we are then, because we will be immortal, um, but there will be mortals on, at least on earth, certainly during the millennial period, it's going to be a mixture of mortals and immortals on the earth. Uh, but I even think that uh, there's this great book, uh, Janet Willis, uh, what on earth will heaven be like, where it goes into great detail about aspects of the New Jerusalem and the layout of everything. And it really helps you to see that this is a real world. There is go goings in and out of the New Jerusalem. And to, to do what? We don't know. But my point is, 500,000 a million years from now, what we look at in this world is going to be considered nothingness. I mean, it's almost mythology. It's like, are you, were you one of those, there's a great mythology two million years from now about what this life was like and the mundane stuff and I don't know, uh, you know, whatever you can think about in politics or wars or whatever now are so mythological to that future time period and the real situation. I don't know. You know, I, I sometimes think of it like the, the universe. Think about all the different galaxies and the different planets and the different stuff. What if that's a part of it? What if there's just this eternal thing that just is, is God's glory forever and a part of, you know, this great kingdom. And we don't even understand the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom itself, to be a part of that kingdom is so amazingly good. Um, and, you know, to be chosen for that kingdom is such a great honor. And you can start to see how fleshing out your view of eternity starts to color how you deal with this life. Finally, I'll say that a huge part of your understanding of glory is also understanding the God of that glory. And 
Christ who is, uh, we are a part of his inheritance. I often think that's an interesting concept in itself. You know, God who loves his son, Jesus, if you think about it, just like he says, you know, his son, um, of course, they're both pre-existing. Now, normally a father gives his son an inheritance uh, because the father will one day die. But Jesus, uh, you know, but, but God will not die, despite what Nietzsche has said. And so the inheritance of Christ, like a father to his son, has given us a people who have been pre- prepared before the foundations of the world for good works. We are a people that will be in heaven and not just enjoying and doing whatever we want, but to serve a God that we love. And that is probably the real meaning of life, is not so much meaning derived from eternity, but meaning derived from the love of the God who inhabits eternity and whom we will serve in eternity. If that's a detestable notion to you instead of a wonderful notion to you, then you now know what your goal is, which is to find love for this God of eternity and to have your chief object be him as opposed to to the eternity and the gifts that he provides. And one of the ways that you do that is first understanding the gravity of what he has done in order to give you that eternity. That is to say, he solved the nearly insolvable problem of justice. Justice must be meted out to everyone. But the problem is, if he gave justice to everyone, you would also have to be destroyed. So the answer was to take your punishment for you. So he took your punishment on your behalf, therefore making you justified, making you right in the eyes of God, therefore being able to be given the Holy Spirit, which will now have the dual effect of empowering you to desire the things of God instead of the things of sin in this world. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 